Well, it's that time again for us to open up the Word of God together, to ask the Holy Spirit to assist us as we study together and help us to apply the precious truths that are there waiting for us. We are in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. If you would find your way there, uh, just a little word of review. We we return this morning to that uh, verse, one verse, verse 17. If you were with us last week, you know that we looked at the first of two commands, which comes in the first half of that verse. We summed it up this way, submit to local church leadership because they are accountable to God for you. Submit to local church leadership because they're accountable to God for you. And that sentence opens first with a command, if you remember, command to members that is clear and non-negotiable, submit to local church leadership. And he goes on to give a twofold reason. One is because they minister to us as those who will give an account. And we took a lot of time to expound on that one phrase quite a bit last time and even pulled out one great principle for the Christian life for all of us, whether we're leaders or not, And that's this, live your life as one who must give an account to God. Very important principle that every one of us needs to apply as we run the race and fight the good fight. And that will make all the difference. The second part of that twofold reason is this, because they keep watch over your souls. And we also gave a lot of attention to that as well, because the activity there is rather foreign today in many churches, It is a comprehensive shepherding with the word of God in hand that is in view here. So with that in mind, we turn our attention now to the second command that comes with its own reason in the second half of the verse. And I'd like to sum it up this way. Let them, that is the leaders, the elders, let them do this, that is keep watch over your souls, with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. It's, ra- it's pretty much the, the, the sentence itself verbatim. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. That is the second command and also the reason or rationale that goes with it. Now, a few words of introduction, I think, are in order here before we tear this last sentence up. Um, it's a very short but profound sentence of Scripture. I want to say that it is true that many pastors in America are not dedicated to this kind of shepherding that we've outlined so far from this verse, the kind that the New Testament defines, the kind that Richard Baxter, if you remember, was convicted about and consequently reformed his ministry ways. Rather, these shepherds look more like those ungodly and selfish shepherds of Ezekiel's time, of whom God said, did not strengthen the sick or heal the diseased, did not bound up the broken, bring back the scattered, nor sought for the lost. And I want to assure you that this kind of unbiblical pastor litters the body of Christ in America, the body of Christ at large in America. Is it any wonder at all 
that a good deal then of church members would also be disinterested in biblical eldership. No, I don't think we're surprised at that at all. It's no wonder at all. It's not high on their list of the top 10 traits of a sound church when they go looking for a home church. Worse still, many of them don't even know what godly leadership looks like. And should they be exposed to it, well, they would think it cultic and scoff at it and even reject it. Whenever bad leadership experiences a revival, much in the same way that Richard Baxter had in his pastorate, the members would find it very difficult, the, the leadership's reformation of their pastorate, very difficult, very uncomfortable, in fact, and they would push back in some harsh ways from genuine shepherding. They would, and they have. They're like a dog that snaps at the caring hand of its owner who tries to take something harmful away from it. Church members often bite the spiritual hand of their godly shepherds who feed them biblical truths. They don't like the taste of it, and they don't appreciate the gesture of care. They find biblical truth hard to swallow, and even harder to apply to their lives. And godly oversight that keeps watch over their souls intolerable. To them, this shepherding is, it's really, it's too in your face. It's elders sticking their nose in members' business where it doesn't belong. It's micromanaging people's lives. Members like this don't want that kind of accountability. They're, they're good at giving the appearance, of course, of, of, of appreciating oversight of godly leadership, yes, but, but they're going to buck against it and even slander it once they're on the receiving end of too much of it. They're like those unworthy slaves that Paul speaks of in Colossians 3, who, you remember, put on a good show only when the master's eye was on them, but they repudiated his authority behind his back. Paul calls them to work hard, not only when their eye is on you but to, and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence to the Lord. And that's the position, or the disposition, I should say, that all godly members of all godly congregations should have as well. We work with all sincerity for the Lord. Now, it's at this point that we might ask, well, why such a volatile resistance to godly shepherding? Why would members not want such godly shepherding? Why would they not appreciate the accountability, the guidance, and and the protection that they give. Well, it's because it's hard to get away with anything when someone's looking over your shoulder all the time. That's why. You cannot coast in the spiritual race or be fruitless in the Christian life under this kind of watch. Complacency won't go unnoticed before conscientious elders. No one can get away with, with sinful behavior for very long under their care. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's not saying very much about such members. You're right. It's not saying very much at all. And that's the point. There is something drastically wrong, beloved, with this kind of posture of a member of a church. Something is certainly amiss with members who think this way. 
if they are saved individuals, they then they they're they're very infantile in their faith. They haven't come to the understanding of what it means to be done with this world, to pick up their cross to follow Christ. Christ is not their life; He's only part of it. The church is more a social outing for them. A, a place where they expect pastors simply to make sure there's enough refreshments to go around and keep them adequately entertained. But I can tell you for sure that not all in Richard Baxter's church of 800 received his new reformed pastoring well. If you read his book, you'll see what I mean. In light of all that we've studied, we know that this first century congregation had developed this kind of posture. Right? So the writer follows up his first command to submit to godly elders with let them do it with joy and not with grief. Or the second command, I should say. He follows that up. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. Well, actually, that is the second command. If you were with us last study, you remember that we argue that godly shepherds are successful when they do exactly what God calls them to do in the area of shepherding. That is, watching over the souls of their members as men who have to give an account to God at the end of time. Whether the members receive their loving guidance and leadership or not, that last part is very important. The success of those whom God has put in leadership is determined not by whether they are received well by their congregations, but whether by whether they are faithful in dispensing godly oversight. The oversight has to be godly, of course. It's ordered by scripture, it's given with all love and patience, it's consistent, it's accurate. So if they're faithful to their calling, they are, by God's standards, successful. Even if their members don't listen to them, doesn't matter. Even if many of them are leaving the church, doesn't matter. Even if many of them are complaining about their oversight, no, doesn't matter. These shepherds could be run out of the church by an ungodly membership mob, and God would still consider them to have been successful in their duties. Now, this is hard for some to believe because they're, I think, so pragmatic in their thinking. If a pastor is not popular with his church, well, default conclusion is that pastor is doing something wrong. He wasn't listening on some day at seminary. But this is not something that Scripture supports. In fact, the opposite even proves my point. There are plenty of famous Christian personalities behind American pulpits that are far from biblical in their leadership, but are well-received and popular and have mega-churches, right? Now, they would do well to remember Jesus' warning, beware when people speak well of you. Now, I might also point out that the Old Testament prophets, on, uh, on the whole, were not received well during much of their ministry by their constituency. You know that. Many were unpopular and even hated. And when God called and commissioned Jeremiah to the prophetic office, he told him flatly, look, no one will listen to you. This is how he puts it. Gird up your loins and arise. 
and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city, as a pillar of iron and as a wall of bronze against the whole land, to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now, how would you like to have that as a ministry? In fact, that should be quoted at every man's ordination service, as far as I'm concerned. God never promises any under-shepherd of Christ anything more than what he promised Jeremiah. I'm convinced. And pastors today who do it right need to remind themselves of that, of that fact. Was Jeremiah successful? Yes, he was. Someone says, but he had no converts. He, he won no one over. Yes, but he did exactly what God called him to do. Members might not listen to their godly shepherds, but that doesn't take away from a successful ministry of the obedient shepherd. Successful pastoral ministry lies with the shepherd himself and his faithfulness to his calling. God raised godly judges and then later godly prophets and godly kings to represent him and proclaim his message to Israel throughout their whole history. They were commended even though the nation rejected them. And Jesus himself put any doubt of this to rest in his Sermon on the Mount when he tells each of us that he and she are persecuted for righteousness' sake, are considered blessed by God. He says in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here Jesus links faithful believers who stand for Christ and are persecuted with the prophets of old who were also persecuted for righteousness' sake, and we can be sure receive God's blessing for it. They did, and so will you. Now, with that little introduction out of the way, I want to get into our text, and I want to assure you that we're not looking today so much at godly leadership this morning but rather we're looking at membership. And I purposely belayed this, belabored rather this discussion a bit on leadership, on what makes godly leadership successful, because I want to set up a sharp contrast in your minds that will, I hope, emphasize this next spiritual truth that we look at this morning from the second half of verse 17. Here's the contrast. While it's true that on the one hand, Members cannot prevent a shepherd from being successful, successful in his ministry duties. Cannot. They can, on the other hand, make ministry a drudgery for him by the way they receive him. All right, that's the contrast. They cannot prevent him from a successful ministry, 
Only he can do that. He is faithful to God, then he has a successful ministry, whether they ever listen to him or not. However, they can make that successful ministry a drudgery. They can take away the joy of pastoral ministry. They can even grieve him or make it a grief for him. We're talking this morning about membership itself and how it receives godly instruction and care and oversight and spiritual coaching in their leadership. How we receive instruction from godly leadership. It's absolutely true that the more submissive members are to their leaders and the more that they welcome godly instruction and guidance from their leadership and the more they esteem them, then the more enjoyable it will be for leadership to minister. And that's really what the writer is saying. The opposite is also true. The more rebellious members are to their leadership and the more they repudiate them, the more grief they cause their leadership. Now look at what the writer says. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. It's so wonderful when members of a local church understand the doctrine of biblical eldership, how it's supposed to work, and desire that kind of oversight because they know it comes from God and it's good for their souls. And those members are of one mind with their leadership. That kind of cohesive relationship of mutual love and respect is so encouraging, not just for members, but also for the shepherds. Now, I mentioned at the close of our study last time that we would be talking about how we, how we members should minister to our leadership. And that statement sounds rather odd to the ear of most members in America. Members ministering to shepherds? Or isn't it, isn't it the other way around? Shepherds are supposed to minister to members, not the other way around. Well, shepherds care for and minister to members, yes, but I would argue from the second half of this verse, verse 17, that members also minister to shepherds, that the ministering that takes place between shepherds and members is really a two-way street. Let me prove this to you first by the larger context of the New Testament. It is clear from the New Testament that we, members, minister to our shepherds when we pray for them in their duties. Paul called the congregations that he established quite a bit to pray for him. In Romans 10.30, Now I beseech you, brethren, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 11, You also helping together by prayer for us, Paul talking about himself and his entourage. In Ephesians 6, 19, pray on my behalf that utterances may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness of the ministry of the gospel. And there are a handful more that we could look at, but I think you have the, the idea. We can also minister to our shepherds by showing them hospitality, which in the first century was huge was huge. John speaks in his third postcard epistle to the churches in Asia to receive itinerant ministers that come from him and preach the true gospel. We can minister to our shepherds 
by caring for their physical needs, tending to their physical needs. Paul received aid from Onesimus. Do you remember Onesimus, the runaway slave? He got saved under Paul's preaching. Yep, left Jerusalem, went all the way to Rome to get away and escape his master, Philemon, only to wind up under Paul's preaching and get saved. Paul writes to Philemon because he knows he's got to send Onesimus back, and Onesimus knows he needs to go back because it is the godly thing to do. And he, he writes to Philemon, and, and, he, and he writes about how this guy ministered to him. He said, I wish to keep him with me so that, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel, a beloved brother especially to me, both in the flesh and in the Lord. How wonderful is that? We can encourage our leaders by standing united with them during times of persecution. That's also how we minister to them. As Luke stood with Paul many times at his trials when others deserted him. Now, what's in Hebrews 13, 17 that would support this idea of members ministering to shepherds? Well, it's the command to submit to their authority and teach and teaching and grow by it. And how does submitting to leadership minister to them? It makes their oversight in our lives and in the life of the church a great joy for them. That's how. To say it negatively, we don't cause them grief. We can minister to them by making their work easier and more pleasurable, or we can hurt their ministry by resisting their oversight, as was the case in many New Testament churches. Certainly the Corinthians gave Paul a difficult time, wouldn't you agree? It's noteworthy that Paul ends his litany of trials that he endured in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, including having been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. He adds to that, at the very end, this reference to his intense concern for the members of his churches. With a pastor's heart, he says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Then there are the Thessalonians. Paul was compelled to write to them in his first epistle, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. He says, but we request of you, brethren, that you should appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. He was likewise compelled to convey the same sentiments to Timothy, who ministered at Ephesus, 1 Timothy 5.17. The elders who rule well, they are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. It's so important that we work with our leadership, in order to make their job a joy and not a burden. I can illustrate <clears throat> what I'm talking about with a more modern example. Everyone in positions of authority understand this principle. And perhaps none can appreciate it more than parents. Two mothers reminisce about their days of motherhood 
when the kids were young, and, and one says to the other, oh, our little Johnny was such an easy child, always compliant. He never gave us a hard time, not once. He was really a joy. His sister Ruth, on the other hand, was a different story. Yes, uh, she was a completely different child altogether. Actually, animal is more like the word. She was a difficult one. She caused us so much grief. And if I may press this illustration a bit further, you can be sure that after a while, little Ruth found no joy in being rebellious either, for at least two good reasons. One is that disobeying parental guidance was a sure way for her to get hurt. Well, parents guide their kids for their best interest, for their kids' best interest, right? Don't play out in the street. Stay away from the neighbor's dog. He's cranky. Eat your vegetables. Other nasty things like that that they tell us, right? All for our good, for our best interest. The second reason is that Ruth met, no doubt, with some painful correction. Godly parenting will alert their children of the corrections that await them if they are disobedient. Even the corrections are instructive. That's how gracious they are to be. But they are also painful for a time, just as the writer to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 12. So in the same way, members who reject their leadership's teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness for no biblical reason at all and make their leadership's job more difficult causing their leaders grief in their oversight responsibility, they will also find their ungodly response unprofitable for themselves. It, it won't go well for the, for the leaders because they cause them grief, but it won't go well for the members either. It will be unprofitable for them, the writer says. By unprofitable, he means that it would not be in the best interest of any member to resist God's ordained leadership. It could be disastrous if they do. Well, you say, how so? <clears throat> Members could, <clears throat> excuse me. Members could, without knowing it, drift into spiritually dark places. They could embrace counterfeit truth, become enticed by the world to follow its lead, and eventually shipwreck their faith. Even put their physical lives in harm's way. More than that, they will surely incur the godly correction that comes from leaders in the form of verbal rebuke and, if necessary, full-blown church discipline. That is why it is unprofitable. Now that is a brief exposition of just one verse, but it's rather profound, as I believe you can see. I want to give you three, just three, practical corollaries to this. By corollary, I mean, I mean practical truths that are related to what we've just read. <clears throat> we already know by command that we're to let our leadership rule well, watch over our souls as men who have to give an account because it, it makes their job a joy. We don't cause them grief. That's why. And if we should cause them grief, then it would be unprofitable for us. We know all of that now. It's pretty clear. 
Here are three corollaries to that. Number one, members who realize that they are responsible for their own spiritual growth will avail themselves of godly elders. If they realize that they are responsible for their own spiritual growth, they will avail themselves of the godly elders. That's the first corollary. I want you to think about something with me. This is astounding. It's astounding that the first century Jewish Christian church that we're reading about here had such a rich heritage of godly leadership, and yet its members were so theologically anemic and drifting. Is that astounding? There were the founding elders of this church that the writer mentions way back in verse 7. They had had already gone to be with the Lord, but the writer calls his audience to remember how these guys lived their faith And then he calls them to imitate them. And these founding elders also then trained and appointed to the office of elder a group of men who would live on and continue the faithful shepherding. The founding elders did everything right. And these elders also were doing everything right. They were successful. But the members were drifting all over the place, fearing persecution, compromising their doctrine and practice, maintaining a bad witness for Christ, incorporating a form of Judaism into into their Christian beliefs. How is that possible when they have such a sound and godly heritage of oversight? Here's your answer. In the end, members are more responsible than their leadership for their own sanctification. These these members were responsible for how they grew, for their own sanctification, for their personal holiness and piety. But they they didn't take it to heart, so they didn't avail themselves of their godly leadership. Beloved, uh, they can have the godliest, most conscientious, most caring and loving biblical eldership and still be wayward if they don't submit to them. Do you understand that? Just as the success of godly leaders depends not on how their members receive them, but on how faithful they are to shepherd them, so the success of members, or that members have in their spiritual growth, depends not on having a godly leadership bunch running the church, but on how faithful the members are to submit and listen to that leadership. There's a difference The presence of godly elders in the church is no guarantee that the members of that church will automatically grow in their sanctification. They're not some kind of magical formula. First century congregation is proof of that, right? They were drifting. And the rest of the New Testament has other examples. Jesus himself had many followers who eventually gave up on him and followed him no more. And you cannot get a better leader than the Lord himself. Paul had trouble from some of the more prominent local churches that he established on his missionary journeys. The Galatians were foolish and bewitched. The Corinthians tolerated foolishness gladly. He warned the Ephesian church ahead of time that false teachers would rise up from among them their own ranks and mislead the flock. And Revelation confirms that that had happened in Ephesus. 
John almost loses his Asian congregation to false teachers who wreak havoc in them. James had to rebuke his congregation for having friendship with the world. All these men were sterling spiritual leaders, top teachers and effective preachers. And still, their congregation exhibited huge problems. And it just goes to show you that no matter how strong and how godly and how biblical the leadership is that rules well in the local church, if their members do not receive it well, and they, refuse to sub- and they refuse to submit to their authority, they will flounder in their faith. No question about it. Their submission makes all the difference in their own spiritual walk. Unsubmissive members resist godly leadership in various ways and to varying degrees. They cause turmoil in the church. They can persuade others to to get rid of the godly leadership even. Many pastors who ministered biblically have been run out of their churches. Or rebellious members will often leave the church and go to another one that will be less conscientious about their spiritual well-being. Of those first century Jewish Christians that we're reading about, some paid only lip service to their leadership, some just tolerated it, still others were passively resisting it by not attending worship regularly. Few, if any, were embracing their leadership, hence the reason for the letter in the first place. Well, let me say it again. Good leadership is no guarantee that members will grow it is, it's a necessary ingredient to growth, yes, but no guarantee. And that's because leaders cannot force submission. Paul says that in the last days, church members will actually purposely depart from orthodox leadership and go searching for bad ones. I think we're in that day now. Spiritual growth of each members of each member is first his and her responsibility. In fact, we know that Christians have grown in their walk with Christ under bad leadership, right? Yes, they have. They didn't put up with bad, uh, with bad teaching for very long. They looked for, for sound teaching. And some of you are actually proof of this. And when you couldn't bring about godly change to bad leadership, you had to leave. And you did which, of course, was the right thing. The success of the member's spiritual growth depends on what they listen to, on who they listen to, what they give themselves to, what they submit to. If they listen to godly leadership and accept their oversight, this is the best scenario, and you can be sure that they will grow. The church will be strong. So if a church is to grow by biblical leadership, the members must first have a submissive heart and accept it begs the question, do you take advantage of this godly resource in the church? Let me move to the second corollary. second corollary is this. Members who want to receive the maximum benefit from their leadership will be transparent with them. Members who want to receive the maximum benefit from their leadership will be transparent with them. What, am I say- what I'm saying here is that submission calls for 
some measure of openness, some measure of honesty, a willingness to be transparent on the part of members. Think of those in the New Testament who put up a front before their spiritual leaders until some tragedy forced their hand to show their true colors. Judas followed the master for three years, sat at his feet, learned from him, received a blessing from his teaching, and even had his feet washed by Jesus. But in the end, it was riches that won him over, showing that he was never on board with Christ to begin with. Now, of course, Jesus knew this. Jesus wasn't taken off guard. Jesus is God, and he knew everything. In fact, determined everything, right, from the very beginning. But Paul was not omniscient. And Paul had his share of deserters who abandoned him. John also had to deal with diatrophies. And now, many in this first century church congregation reveal that they have divided loyalties. They may have showed loyalty to Christ and to his church, but when push came to shove, they withdrew. Now, there's only so much godly leadership can do for people like that, beloved. And the problem is compounded by the member's deception. Leaders are not mind readers. They cannot know your heart. And if you want their input to know important godly principles to apply to your particular situation, at home, at work, at the gym, wherever, social settings, to make the wisest decisions in a particular situation, they, they have to know as much data as possible about you and your situation. It is incumbent upon members to nurture, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, a submissive heart and a close working relationship with their shepherds, like that reciprocal, affectionate relationship that Paul enjoyed eventually with the Thessalonians. You remember, Paul said, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Good shepherding is God's way of running the church. They're, they are good at giving you spiritual guidance, helping you to be diligent to stay the course, to help you to discern God's will for you in a particular area of your life, to nurture your loyalty to God and godly motives, and to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, to help you run well the, 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 the race of faith and to fight valiantly. Godly leadership is a resource for your sanctification. The better your leaders know you, the more effective their leadership will be in your lives. Be open, be honest with them about your struggles, transparent about your challenges and strengths and weaknesses and temptations, spiritual gifts, joys, and griefs in the good fight, do not keep your leadership guessing. And by the way, they can certainly relate on many levels because they too have struggles and challenges and strengths and weaknesses and temptations and so on. Number three, finally, we'll close with this. Members will submit to local church leadership unless it is sin to do so. They will submit 
to local, local church leadership unless it is sin to do so. This particular application, as I say, is an implication from our text, a corollary. The command to submit to godly elders here and to make their job a joy begs the question, well, what if my elders are not godly or biblical? Am I still supposed to submit to them? Does the writer to the Hebrews call me to blind obedience? Well, the short answer is no, absolutely not. Principle, when it comes to submitting to God-given authorities over us, both in secular life as well as in the church, is to submit to them unless it is sin to do so. If elders are unbiblical in any of their practices, members should go to them humbly with the word of God in their hand to confront the situation with the hope of straightening it out and, if necessary, encouraging repentance and change. Paul commands the church to protect godly elders from false accusations in 1 Timothy 5, but, he says, those who continue in sin... Rebuke in the presence of all. If an elder is sinning, and elders can sin, then they need to be called on it. And there needs to be repentance and change. Just because certain men fill the office of elder doesn't mean that they're necessarily sound either. Even those who have gone through the more rigorous process in more conservative churches. Not all pastors are created equal, beloved. And there are plenty of rogue leaderships out there that operate in the name of Jesus. As we pointed out, Paul warned the Ephesian church of that one that was coming. And Peter and Jude both warned the churches that it had come. We have examples of false teachers who mislead the entire church that Paul established on his missionary journey. The Judaizers who deceived the Galatians are example are example of that. Paul pronounces an anathema on them, curses them, because they were teaching a different gospel. And the implication in Galatians chapter 6 is that the Judaizers are frauds, so don't listen to them. Reject their leadership is the idea. John uh, exposes those of a Gnostic persuasion that infiltrated his Asian churches and nearly destroyed them. In his first epistle, he described them as apostates, right? They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be evident to all that they were not of us. He then assures his congregation that they have already received from the Holy Spirit, who abides in them, the truth. And that they need no one to ever teach them the truth regarding the gospel. Don't let anybody ever come in here ever again and tell you something different than what you've heard from us. In his third epistle to the Asian churches, he singles out Diotrephes, as a leader gone rogue, he tells them <clears throat> not to listen to him, but listen rather to Demetrius, a leader worthy to imitate. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony 
and you know that our testimony is true. Church leadership that leaderships that are genuine, that are legitimate, godly, and biblical, they are not untouchable, but rather they are very approachable. And they are not prideful, but rather they are humble, even teachable when they are shown to be in error. They meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, of 1 Peter 5. They model what they preach. Only those who fit that bill are those God calls us to submit to and to honor. Let me leave you with this thought. All right? If Paul commands us to submit to secular government, unless it's sinful to do so, because disobeying it for no biblical reason means opposing the ordinance of God, how much more severe is our opposition to God when we reject the biblical care of legitimate under-shepherds? Beloved, let's think soberly about how we relate to our leadership going forward. Our Father, we are grateful for your goodness to us. We're grateful for the words here before us in Hebrews 13, 17. And they are relatable. We can understand them. And we've been in churches that are very similar to this. And we appreciate the commands here, the two commands and, and the reasons for them. When we pray, we would take them to heart. We're so grateful for our little church here, Lord, where there is a cohesive and, and unified bond between leadership and members, where members do fulfill this very verse here in this church, and may it ever and always be so. We pray, however, that we would continue to be diligent in this area, not let our guard down, and that leadership, as it grows, would grow with the membership, and that both would grow together in the Lord, and that you would be honored and that you would use this church in great ways in this area, in this time in history, for your glory, for your good, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.